Hello from Cybrary, and welcome to the show. If you've been enjoying the Cybrary podcast or 401 Access Denied, then make sure to like, follow, and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. We'd love to hear from you. Join the discussion by leaving us a comment or review on your platform of choice or emailing us at podcast at cybrary.it. From all of us at Cybrary, thank you and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome back to the Cybrary Podcast. I'm your host, Will Carlson, Senior Director of Content here at Cybrary, and I am very fortunate today to be joined by a longtime partner organization of Cybrary, Melwood. And Scott is joining me from Melwood, and I won't try to belabor uh, an intro to Scott and Melwood and the mission that the organization has, but I will, as I tend to, get out of the way and let Scott more graciously represent himself and the organization that he's a phenomenal part of. So Scott, thanks for joining us um, and tell us a little bit about who you are and and who Melwood is. Thanks, Will. I'm thrilled to be here. So my name's Scott Gibson. I'm the Chief Strategy Officer at Melwood. Melwood's getting ready to celebrate its 60th anniversary. It started in 1963 when a group of parents dreamed that there was something better for their children. Um, Children at that time with a neurodevelopmental disability were often thought of as unemployable or untrainable. And this group of parents band together and decided that they were going to teach horticulture and plant care to their children because believe it or not, even here in the DC area, agriculture was still a very viable industry for job placements. Um, As we've grown over the last 60 years, the challenge has broadened. It's not just about landing any job. It's about, you know, helping people set up a career of their choosing. My goal as the chief strategy officer is to continue that tradition of daring dreaming. Um, So, you know, obviously our parents were dreaming about something better than institutional care in 1963. Over the past few years, I've been able to dream about how do we set people up for careers of the future. Right here in the D.C. metro area, we know one of the best careers of the future to align our folks to is in cybersecurity and tech. We have the second highest concentration of open entry open entry-level jobs here in the D.C. area for cybersecurity and tech. And what we're doing is we're showing that people with disabilities can be perfect for these jobs. Yeah, no, that's a really, I, I, I love where you ended on that. I, um, having been in the cybersecurity field for a number of years and having known um, and knowing very well a number of, of kind of neurodivergent individuals, there are so many interesting things depending on in what ways somebody is neurodivergent as a label that can uniquely qualify them, in my opinion, for careers in cybersecurity. You know, I've known some folks that have attention to detail, Scott, that I wish that I <laughs> I had um, the ability to see signal and noise. I just think there are so many really interesting things about cybersecurity that could make somebody that, you know, our culture would, would say is neurodiver- neurodiverse that are uniquely suited for some of the kind of the skill sets required for certain careers in cybersecurity. I wonder if that's something that um, Melwood has experienced and seen, or, or maybe you have a different opinion on that. No, it, it absolutely is. And, you know, I'm the first to tell you, I'm not a tech person. I, I'm a policy person by expert. I'm a human services programming person um, by, by experience. But my basic understanding of cybersecurity is we're talking about a challenge or a puzzle, right? We're figuring out how something got broken or how something could be broken and what better way to do that than by inviting as many perspectives or approaches to problem solving as possible? Like when we, when we think about neurodiversity at its core, what it really is, is this, this recognition that all of us process information and learn differently. 
And so if you think about the distribution of the ways we process and learn throughout the population and you imagine a bell curve for a moment, you know, the way that bell curve works, most of us are going to tend towards that middle, right? Within a standard deviation or two, that's where most of the population is going to fall. But there are perspectives out there, ways of processing information out on the tail ends that are markedly different than the majority of us. That's where neurodivergence occurs. And what I love about what you said and what I see with a program like this and where I think industry is going when I look at agencies like the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency and what they're doing is we're recognizing that we don't need to think about that tail end of the bell curve as different. We, we can see it as a strength. And if we embrace that strength, we open ourselves up to new ways of looking at problems. We open ourselves up to new innate talents and innate strengths that help us solve problems faster. You know, hyper-focus, you can look at it one of two ways. That person is going to be very driven to solve a particular problem, or you could see it as they, they shut out the norms of social interaction at work. Hmm. I love that we see industry taking a strengths-based approach and starting to say, you know, how can we tap into these differences to create solutions that are stronger, that are better. Yeah, no, I, I, I personally couldn't agree with that more in my experience and I'm, I'm super encouraged. And, and I think in no small part to, to the work of organizations like Melwood to help kind of raise the visibility of, of this particular issue. Um, so hats off to Melwood and the work that you're doing to help get there. But I am, again, encouraged to see that that is, that is seeming to happen in multiple places uh, across industry, I think for the benefit of everybody involved. Oh, absolutely. And I would love to take credit for it. And I think the nonprofits like Melwood do a lot of work. But I think one of the things that we have to reconcile with is that one in 40 children today is diagnosed as on the autism spectrum. And that's just one form of neurodivergence. This isn't just going to be a social good. This is going to become an industry imperative. When we're talking about that large a portion of the population, this is potential workforce that we just simply cannot leave untapped, particularly when we keep seeing articles about the war for entry-level talent. We know uh, there's a project out there called CyberSeek, you know, that kind of maps out where the, the entry-level tech jobs are and what the need is. We know that there are more jobs than people to fill them today. At the same time, we know that if you're an adult with a disability, whether it's autism or another disability, you're more likely to be unemployed and underemployed, despite the fact you might be perfectly suited for these jobs. What we're really doing here is we're recognizing these problems can solve each other. Yeah, no, I, I, I again, you and I are going to be in, in high alignment throughout the discussion today. So, so ex fully expect that everybody here. I, I, I am curious. So, you know, to your point about um, kind of right fitting the right individual for uh, the the job in front of them, regardless of what you know, what that individual brings to the table. I mean, maybe I'll say it this way. Like if I were to be told I had to be an artist <laughs> and draw, um, I would not find fulfillment or success in that particular career. And I think in many ways, industry has somewhat done that as far as social and performance norms. Um, so it's good to see that we're breaking out of that and understanding that, you know, maybe it's just not the right fit in the right role with the right set of, of skill sets, right? So it's, um, I'm not fit to be an artist, but I'm certainly fit to be in number of other things, as are people that are neurodivergent. They may not be fit for uh, a, a job that has them in socially taxing situations in front of people on a regular basis, but there are certainly roles that 
know, if that's how neurodiversity shows up for them, that that leverage uh, the skill sets that they bring and minimize the things that they find challenging, which is, is something that's I've kind of self-selected for myself in my own personal career. So I don't I don't find it to be terribly different than what many of us have experienced outside of you know, this strange social pressure um, that seems to come along with that. And it's not just roles, it's it's settings as well. So, you know, absolutely the way the job is structured plays a part. One of our participants once said, um, we're saltwater fish. If you put us in freshwater, we're always going to struggle. But if you put us in saltwater, we'll be just fine. We've built our workplace, the physical setting. We've built our job selection process really around neurotypicality, what works for, for the majority of us. If we start embracing universal design and how we set up the workplace and how we set up the work environment and how we set up the selection process, we will see people succeed. Uh, but what we need to do is we need to recognize that this is a double empathy problem. Um, so for a long time, we have thought about this from the, the sense of how the individual with a disability or how the autistic individual is struggling to communicate with us. We need to start thinking about how we're struggling to communicate with them as well. And, and forgive me for using the us, them uh, pronouns there. But what, what I'm trying to, to hit at is both parties, the neurotypical and the neurodivergent, are struggling to communicate with each other. And we need to tackle it from both sides. Um, so we do need to reevaluate how are we selecting talent? How are we setting up our work environment? And I can talk about some of the ways that plays out. Like if you think about entry-level talent hiring, very often it is based on hiring for attitude and training for skill. We've all heard that advice. You know, when you're, when you're coming out of college, the reality is you don't have much to put on your resume to prove know-how, you know? And so somebody's making this bet, can I invest in this person and train them to be the employee I want to be? And they're often making that bet based off of their social interaction. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the diagnosis criteria for autism is pervasive challenges with social interaction. You know, we are kind of culturally taught that eye contact is a sign of being forthright and lack of eye contact is a sign of being evasive. Well, we know that some individuals, because of their neurodivergence, will struggle with eye contact throughout their entire life. If we can be aware of these biases and account for them in our selection process, then we're more open to neurodiversity. Um, if we can reevaluate our job selection process altogether to evaluate tasks and know-how and kind of move away from that social interaction being important, then we will have a better hiring process. Or look at the college career fair. Audio hypersensitivity is a very common trait for a neurodivergent individual to experience. If you put that individual in a crowded exhibition hall where there are tons of booths and you know, 30 conversations going on within a close perimeter, they may be hearing all of that background noise in a very distracting, very uncomfortable way. Yes. Um, we're, we're not setting people up to succeed. So what a lot of researchers are doing is they're starting to talk about this as double empathy and make sure that the conversation is shaped around changing how we communicate with people with disabilities and neurodivergent individuals and not just trying to find ways to help individuals with neurodivergence or disability communicate better with us. We've got to tackle it from both sides. I, I love the, the the term double empathy. Uh, you know, I, I think in my experience, people in my past that have been neurodivergent in one way or another were 
almost always more keenly aware of that and how I wanted to be communicated with as a neurotypical person than I was in reciprocal, right? So they, they knew more about how to communicate and try to live in my world than I had any understanding about how to communicate with them in a way that fit. And what an seemingly unfair balance to all of that, right? So I know even um, in my professional career, have worked with a number of people that had just fundamentally different communication styles than me. Like both neurotypical individuals, but we struggled to accomplish a set of goals or to be headed in the same direction just because our communication styles were different. And once we acknowledge that fundamental difference, and I think to your point, realize that the solution to that is not for either of us to become like the other, but for both of us to become more like each other and to find a place to meet in the middle was really when we won. So having the same expectation of both neurotypical and neurodiverse people doesn't seem like much of a stretch to me in practice, although it's somewhat seemingly difficult when there's a, a, a disconnect on, of awareness on either side of that kind of continuum. The good news is that industry is recognizing that this disconnect is there and programs like Abil IT are starting to bridge the gap. So on one level, it's really easy to look at Abil IT as a program supporting individuals with disabilities to launch careers in tech. And we, we do that really quite well. So for 14 weeks, we are training, leveraging the Cyberay platform on tech skills so somebody can earn a certification, CompTIA, ITF, A+. We've had people earn Network Plus and Security Plus to demonstrate they have know-how. And what we weave into that is what we call our personal and professional development training. You know, how do we help um, teach the skills that you'll need to succeed in the workplace? A lot of it's around self-advocacy and teaching people how to communicate their needs or how to build up their natural systems of support. Because we all have natural systems of support in our home, and our workplace. Um, but sometimes we need help building them. Um, one of our participants said, you know, we're helping teach those social interaction uh, activities and behaviors that a lot of us take for granted, but that just aren't intuitive for some individuals with disabilities. And, and yes, we do that. That's a main focus of the 14-week program is, is to build that up. But because we're building up a strong pipeline of talent to these individuals, we also have employers coming to us and mm -hmm. saying, all right, how do we now tap in to this pipeline and how do we make sure barriers are removed? And so we're seeing leading employers like CGI and GDIT, MITRE and KPMG coming to Melwood and we're giving them disability awareness training, neurodiversity awareness training. We're facilitating introductions to talent, but we're doing it in a way where we're helping that employer recognize where the obstacles may be and how they can get around them. Because we do have to take that double empathy approach and, and tackle this challenge from both sides. Well, that's great. And you've actually already segued kind of into my, my next train of thought here, and that's to, to, to get some explanation and to better understand the, the nature of the Abil IT program. So I, my, I guess my question was going to be, like, if we both acknowledge that there is this fundamental need in the market of, of both, uh, you know, the spectrum of people being better equipped to understand each other and that as far as business is concerned, we have to take some different approaches and have a different sensitivity to that. I would assume that the way that we're training neurodiverse, neurodiverse people is going to need some equally different approaches. So to your point uh, about the job fair, um, putting somebody who's 
uh, neurally diverse in a classroom of 300 plus peers in a lecture hall, for example, may not be the best learning outcome for that individual. So I'm curious if, you know, if it's through partnerships between organizations like Melwood and Cybrary, but what does the difference in approach for training individuals that are neurodiverse look like? And what is, how is Melwood seeing those show up? So many times it's not learning that's, that's terribly different. Um, you know, there are colleges of all sizes. There are different training programs of all sizes. So somebody can find kind of an entryway. Uh, what we've probably got to get better at doing is recognizing that there are different paths to that first job in tech. Um, and interestingly, I remember when I was meeting with one of your founders, uh, Brian had shared with me, he thought that that was something that the industry would always be open to because so many of the tech pioneers were self-taught, right? There wasn't a formal four-year program when tech was really starting to take off. There, there was a, a lot of self-teaching. Um, what I think becomes the challenge for entry-level talent is not necessarily the learning. It's the respecting the path to the first job. Um, unemployment and underemployment are just simply pervasive in the population of people with disabilities. Um, I'm thinking about one of our program graduates, Brian. Brian had self-taught himself seven coding languages. He was college educated, but because he was struggling with entry-level interviews, his only work was stocking shelves until he came to a bill IT. Had it not been for a facilitated introduction, I don't know that Brian would have had the path to the career he has today. But what we were trying to create for Brian with Ability and what we're trying to create for all program graduates is a way for an employer to have comfort recognizing that individual's journey to starting their career. So we're hoping to combine demonstrated technical know-how. So we're not building people up for Melwood saying that they're good at tech or that they have the skills. We want CompTIA or an industry-respected organization to sign off and certify. This person really knows what they're talking about. So that's why we're leveraging Cybrary and, you know, not a special curriculum to help gear somebody towards a certification that industry already respects. But then when we're adding to it, the other pieces to this formula are increasing confidence and increasing that skill set to self-advocate, to build that personal um, natural system of support. You, you've got to, you know, have all three together. Um, when it comes to learning, a lot like employment, we just need to make sure that there's enough variety of options that people can pick what works for them. Yeah, I know that that's really great. So in the seat that I sit in directing the creation of, of all of that content here on the Cyberary platform, it's it's really interesting to hear you say that because we talk about that lot as a, a lot as a team of uh, having a really varied approach for so many reasons, right? So some prefer one particular approach of the other over another. Uh, like, I, I want to get hands-on and learn that way. Other people are more careful. They want to learn all the theory about everything before they do anything. And yep. it is, it's interesting, again, just from a you know neurotypical, neurodiverse perspective, as we're building content, we're not, I, I won't say that we don't care. That's the wrong way to characterize it. But it is one and the same regardless. We, we have... All people seemingly want to learn in a variety of ways. Not, I mean, I, I'll say as a professional, I think if I sit down, Scott, to another 
overly verbose slide presentation with way too many words on a slide, totally devoid of graphics, where I get droned at for the entire presentation. (laughs) I don't care where I fit on what spectrum in the world. That's certainly not what I want to do. So it's really interesting to hear you say, in, in some ways, it's not uh, it's not that it's a, a targeted approach. It's that it's the same approach for everybody, but that it's just varied for all of our benefit. Yeah, and there's something kind of baked into what you said that's really important to point out. Uh, one of our, our mission partners is EY. EY has been working for a long time at embracing neurodiversity. And they will tell you that they started a lot of their initiatives thinking we were doing this for them, right? We were doing this for neurodivergent individuals or individuals with disabilities. <laughs> And they recognized a lot of the adjustments they were making or the tweaks they were making really worked well for everybody because we all do have different learning styles. We all do have different preferred environments that enable success. Now, I freely admit that if you're a neurodivergent individual, it might be more heightened. You may be more sensitive um, than the variation we see within neurotypical people, but it does exist. And so a lot of times, all this is about is getting to know people as individuals and making sure that as much as you reasonably can, you're accommodating for the differences that exist among us. Uh, And that's one of the reasons why, you know, we decided to partner with a platform like Cybrary, because within a platform like this, there is the ability to self-pace. There is the ability to kind of pick what works a little bit better for you. um, So you can map out your own individual journey. We have some participants who really love our instructor-led units and who really love our hands-on learning. We have some students who really do prefer to grind through the Cyberate courses before they try to do something in a hands-on way. By partnering with Cyberate, we were able to accommodate that kind of wide spectrum of of interest and need. uh, And it's worked really well. And I would encourage any employer, if they're looking at training and development, to make sure that you know, they can accommodate different learning styles because they do exist. And the more we accommodate them, the better we'll be as an organization. I completely agree. I think it's it's also really interesting to think about um, myself having been a mentor for a number of years here on the Cyberry platform, circling back to your comment about, you know, the way our, our, our sourcing process is set up. Um, and even in speaking with, you know, Cyberry CEO Kevin Haynes previously uh, with Dell SecureWorks and the way their sourcing process worked, so much of it hinges on a, a person's ability to communicate within given social norms effectively about what they know, even for very, very technical roles, right? So to your point, like at the end of the day, this is about your ability to execute a set of skills and tasks before you your social interaction on the team may legitimately be relatively small, but we have this sourcing process that is heavy on that and really light on technical abilities completely. And I know, again, as as a mentor here on our platform, I can't tell you the number of times that I talked to people that would never uh, classify themselves and wouldn't be classified as neurodiverse that still struggled with that part of it, right? So I... I've been in situations like that. How do I effectively articulate what I know in a socially charged situation that's technical know-how, but I'm not really having anything more than a technical interview where you lob at me this technical question that I have to puzzle through? Like That's not an easy ask, my point, to many people and have spent a fair bit of my own time coaching people how to do that well. 
let alone people that had some additional struggles with that kind of interaction? So there are a couple of ways we can attack a challenge like that. The first, and I think the the most forward-thinking employers are saying, we don't need conversational interviews. We can set up simulations and and test or task tests where we can actually assess skill and know-how. And there are employers that are out there doing that. Melwood helps employers figure out how to build simulations so you can actually assess somebody's ability to do certain tasks. We also see some employers just looking at, are there accommodations they can make in the more traditional interview process? Uh, Does somebody really need to communicate this response verbally in conversation? Can you have somebody come to the office, give them a written challenge, and ask them to write out a statement? You know, have a a workstation set up where they, they type out an answer or an explanation. Because... Candidly, more often than not, we need somebody to effectively communicate in writing, not in a conversation. You know, what's really important is can somebody summarize something in a one-page memo or an email uh, more often than not? Or do we give certain questions in advance of the interview as an accommodation? Uh, I think about a Melwood program graduate uh, who he's the type of individual, when he gets a question, he's going to go through his full thought process internally before he verbalizes an answer. That's just his nature. Um, And he went to interview for MITRE for a data analyst position. And we shared with MITRE, you know, if you were willing to give him some of the questions two hours in advance of the interview, we think you'd have a much better conversation because that would allow him to get through the internal thinking and get to the answer. He was one of those individuals, we always said, he kind of warmed up in a meeting. The first 45 minutes of a meeting, he was going to be very quiet. You would get you would get talking in the last 15 minutes because that's when, you know, he he kind of caught up and got through his process. So they did that. And the way I understand it is they have this question that they ask in every data analyst interview. <clears throat> and the nature of the question, there's not a right or wrong answer. It's to see how people tackle the problem. And they always had one of three varieties of a response to this. Mm-hmm. And our program graduate gave them a completely new and novel approach to solving the challenge and commented on the three approaches that they customarily heard. And I can tell you, two hours was not enough time for him to sit and research, you know, all this stuff. It wasn't like he he went and kind of built up his answer in a way that others couldn't. He just had time to think about it. And then he communicated a full answer. And they debriefed the interview and said, you know, that was probably the best discussion of this challenge question they'd had in the decade or so that they've been asking the question. And I'm proud to say he's there now. Uh, you know, and and he is tackling problems from a different perspective, and uh, he's become a very valuable member of the team and has won awards. But knowing that he's an individual that kind of warms up in conversation is going to start very quietly. If they'd have hired him the old-fashioned way, and it would have just been, you know, here's your hour to spend with a hiring manager, I don't know that that talent would have ever shown through. Uh, I do so think it's a it's a really interesting set of of problems, right? So I, you know, having been a hiring manager for a number of roles myself, um, and having been hired for a number of roles myself as well, I think, you know, when you find yourself in that situation, you do get the luxury of being able to see both sides of the coin. So I can totally see organizations being a little hesitant, right? So like, well, this is our standard hiring practice. And if we change this, what does it mean? And But the the example you just gave is so encouraging, because what it proves to me is that if organizations will be open-minded, one, 
and two, focused on their goals, that then three, there probably are a lot more creative solutions to some of these problems that we have yet to explore because we're a little bit of doing things the way we've always done them because that's how it's always been. I always tell people, I think that is the most dangerous phrase we hear in business. You know, That's the way we do things. That's the way we've always done things. Um, and we've got to start recognizing, I think, particularly after COVID, that there's been a complete paradigm shift when it comes to the workforce and workforce recruiting. And I do firmly believe that organizations that are stuck to that past way of doing things, they're just not going to succeed because the percentage of the population that is affected by disability is large. And we know that they are unemployed and underemployed at pervasive, I mean, rates much higher than the population without disabilities. Um, we're struggling for talent. We can't afford to leave this, this piece of the workforce untapped. But it's much more than social interaction. So, you know, I was talking about that journey to the job. I remember a program graduate saying to me once, you know, I keep applying for these jobs that are entry level and they want one or two years experience. Where do you get those first two years experience? And it was a great question because we have for a long time struggled with this entry level jobs requiring experience uh, issue. Nobody ever wants to be first. Uh, and we do need to recognize that because of the challenges that people with disabilities and people who are neurodivergent have faced, their resumes are not going to look as great in automated applicant tracking systems. Mm. And a lot of these resumes are going to be screened out, unfortunately, and you're going to miss wonderful talent. I talked about Brian. All of Brian's job experience was stocking shelves. You know, if you have an automated applicant tracking system and it's looking for experience, probably not going to go very well. Um, college education is another. You know, college education has become this kind of line we've drawn where we assume that it means certain things about your, your reading ability, your writing ability, your math skills, your problem-solving skills. Even the federal government is starting to recognize that we need to be open to pathways to careers that don't necessarily include college education. Some neurodivergent individuals, some individuals with disability, the, the classic college experience is not going to go well for them, not because they can't hack it academically, not because they're not brilliant, but because of all of the social pressures, because of the environmental pressures. Um, they're just not going to fare well in that setting. We had a young man, one of the brightest individuals I had ever met, taught himself coding languages, was building massive databases um, for problem solving in his free time, because that's what he liked to do for fun. College didn't work very well for him. We were fortunate as he graduated a bill IT to eventually be able to match him with an employer, in this case, Wells Fargo, that was able to see past that non-traditional route and able to look at raw talent and compare him to the skills assessments to see he had the know-how to do the job. Plus he had that, that's why we lean so hard on the IT certification so there's even that piece of paper showing know-how. Mm -hmm. But if he'd have gone through their normal applicant tracking system and they'd have looked for a four-year degree, he'd have never made it through. We, we really do have to open ourselves up to just a broad new way of thinking when it comes to entry-level talent. I, I, I've continued to be uh, impacted as we're discussing things today. How, how much of what we're discussing about the impacts and implications for neurodiverse people, I've seen show up for neurotypical people. Admittedly, uh, to your point, in a maybe a different way and to a different 
kind of order of magnitude. Um, so not to diminish um, um, the situation of some neurodiverse uh, individuals. I, it, it is very real, but so many of these things to me, Scott, are different implementations of some of the same problem set that we all deal with in one way or another. Like some of these are not new problems. They're problems that have existed. Like if I want to go get my degree in engineering from university, but I'm really bad at some of the liberal arts requirements of that degree program, as an example, like I'm going to struggle through that. And if that means I don't get a great grade point average and I want to go on to an organization that cares about my college background, then that may come along with me everywhere I go. Like it's just so interesting to me, again, that these are not necessarily new problems, but the same problems presented in maybe a new way or to a different degree. Or heightened, yeah. I, I think it's fair to say, um, you know, in, in some cases, these are problems that can affect all of us, but they're certainly heightened, or the barrier is certainly steeper when you're adding disability or neurodivergence to it. And so so I wonder, in, in all of that, um, and maybe this is the million dollar question that, that Melwood is working on. And, and I'll, I'll ask the question by first saying that, um, you know, I appreciate and again, applaud the, the high touch, uh, high connection making process that Melwood is following to kind of, I won't say circumvent, that's the wrong way to characterize it, but to help people get around some of the roadblocks that our traditional process creates. It makes me wonder, as an industry or an organization, for those listening, I'm thinking of particularly those that are hiring managers and security organizations today, those that are executives in those organizations, those that are leaders in those organizations. Like, What can we do to help advance this problem at scale? Uh, Not to work Melwood out of, of work. I don't know that that's ever going to happen within the foreseeable future, but how do we do this at bigger impact than organizations like Melwood stepping in and just making these connections happen? Like from where you sit, is there a way that we can each impact the outcomes of this particular problem or should we leave it to the qualified hands of of nonprofits like Melwood? So I I think we start by being aware of it. And I, I think it does help to have an outside organization like a Melwood come in and help you learn where those barriers may be. Uh, When Melwood comes in for most organizations, what we do first is we say, ask your workforce, because the reality is you probably have people with disabilities. You probably have neurodivergent individuals on your workforce now. You just may not know it or you may not be thinking Mm -hmm. of it, right? Um, I think what, what organizations need to do as employers to get to a place where they can solve this problem at scale is first start really thinking about what is truly required to succeed in the job. Forget everything else, but at the core, what is truly required to succeed in the job? And then ask themselves, they should ask themselves, how do we cast the widest net? And how do we make sure our filters for the selection process are only weeding out those individuals that can't meet what is required for the job? You know, it may mean that we have multiple paths for somebody to get from applicant to job. Perhaps we keep the traditional interview, but we add to it quarterly or monthly um, assessment processes that allow people to move through and be tested on skill set. Maybe we start looking at this as a, a specialized recruiting tool. Almost every large employer has a university or college recruiting arm, right? 
they have a specialized recruiting arm that's focused just on people coming out for you. What and many have a specialized recruiting arm on transitioning veterans. What if we started saying we're going to develop a third specialized recruiting arm that's focused on this population of people with disabilities, you know, this population of neurodivergent people, and is going to introduce them to a pipeline that didn't exist before, you know. the Melwoods of the world, our goal is to put ourselves out of business. I mean, we, we are going to keep churning out talent who is ready to launch careers and, and helping build people up. But this network, Melwood's not unique. There are Melwoods in every community. And if industry would start treating the Melwoods of the world like colleges and universities and start saying, you know, we're, we're going to start fishing in these ponds. Here's where we're going to recruit. We're going to have a specialized team who's going to think about recruiting very differently. I think they'd succeed. And while I say the Melwood method of of matching people up with employers is different, the reality is it's only different for entry-level talent. In many ways, what we are doing is very similar to the process large recruiting firms are using for executive and mid-level talent. If you've ever outsourced a search to a firm like a corn ferry, you have gone through a similar process where somebody has talked to you about what the needs are for the job, They've put together a pool of candidates that they've introduced you to. They've told you what makes them tick or what's going to attract them to the opportunity. And you have a highly individualized process. We're really good at doing that for C-suite and for executives and for mid-level talent. I would argue we could do it for entry-level talent too, and we would solve one of our biggest workforce challenges. It is really interesting, right, from the cybersecurity perspective in particular. And I think with the way that some recent macroeconomic trends have been shifting the the balance of power, as it were, between employers and employees, and a number of pundits have a number of opinions on that, I think that will continue to be uh, an interesting uh, situation, as it were, to watch um, generally. But um, in cybersecurity, it's really pointed, right? So when you look at the number of open roles and the lack of people to put into it. Um, Here at Cyberary, we talk a lot about one of our core tenants is to help solve the capacity problem in the market. And one of the ways that we believe that um, that we will go to work in doing that is to cast a wider net, um, to stop fishing out of the same ponds, as it were. So for security organizations to stop growing their teams by taking from the teams of others, like that may do one organization good for a while, but it certainly doesn't solve our industry and our kind of collective global problem uh, of cybersecurity well. And it's just to your point of having, you know, that third arm uh, out, sourcing at organizations like Melwood um, could be a huge impact um, to that particular skill shortage that is a, a new approach to finding really highly qualified talent for these roles that organizations haven't seemed to been able to fill for years and years with no seeming improvement in sight, minus a couple of you know departures along the years when the gap has shrunk only to grow again. And and you don't have to take my word for it. I mean, leading researchers, Dr. Kevin Pelfrey at the University of Virginia has put out studies on how autistic individuals in many ways uh, have innate strengths that make them perfectly equipped to handle these cybersecurity roles. And we do see it. Affinity for repetitious tasks, hyper-focus, the ability to spot a break in a pattern very, very quickly, um, an affinity for uh, regulation and process We see that. We're also seeing leading employers recognizing that actually here in the U.S., we're falling behind on this talent war for uh, neurodivergent talent in particular. 
So the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency launched an amazing pilot in partnership with, with Melwood and with MITRE. MITRE actually funded it um, to look at how do we embrace neurodiversity in these types of security roles. Um, but part of what inspired NGA to take the leap on this was they had visited similar operations that were already underway in Israel and other parts of the world where, where they are leaning in and they're, they're reaping the rewards of opening themselves up to neurodiversity and then casting a wider net to fill these hard-to-filled roles and to bring in different perspectives to the challenge. Uh, so I, I think all the signs are there that this is a positive investment for an employer to make. The, the increasing struggle to fill these talent roles, the increasing capacity challenge, it's just going to make it an imperative. This isn't just a good thing to do because it helps people. It really is a business imperative that just also happens to be a good thing to do. Yeah, I think it's so. the other kind of two tenants that we uh, ascribe to here at Cyber are capacity being one of them, which we talked about, but the other is capability and confidence. And so what I, what neither of us, I, I hear, neither of us are advocating for put anybody in a role that's not uniquely qualified and capable of doing the work, actually quite the opposite. And I think that's why the partnership between Melwood and Cyber really is interesting. We're solving the capacity problem in a new way while still owning the capability. Like people ultimately need, able, need to be able to perform the job functions and the confidence of that. So, and I think the confidence problem permeates regardless of your position on the, the neurodiversity spectrum or neurotypical spectrum. Like as an employer, I need to know that this person in this role is, I need to have confidence that the person in the role is going to be capable of performing it. And through organizations like Melwood helping to bridge that gap, um, things like certifications helping to show that there's knowledge and then things like Cyberary and the skills-based content that we put forward, some in partnership with MITRE themselves to show that people can really do and perform the functions of that role. It starts to be a really compelling, um, uh, holistic offering, I would say. Yeah, that's why I love to brag that we leverage Cyberary as our platform for the technical learning. I mean, your presence amongst large industry is huge. And so I can say to a hiring manager, they're using the same tools your workforce is using today. They're, you know, they're taking the same modules, they're, they're taking the same tests. And that's why it's so important that it's not Melwood certifying the technical know-how, it's CompTIA, you know, and that we leverage industry-respected standards. We, I want to be incredibly clear that we're not talking about watering down job standards. Um, what we're talking about changing are the artificial, I call them the artificial barriers to employment. You know, whether or not somebody had a great conversation with you, that's really an artificial barrier to employment. Whether or not somebody's, you know, job experience to date has been stocking shelves or whether they were the one that was able to land the great internship uh, with the tech firm while they were in college, that's kind of an artificial barrier if they can show you, if they can demonstrate that they have the know-how. So what I'm, what I'm actually, a number of things, obviously, but what some of the big takeaways, like for the audience listening today, I, you know, I love to, when we have conversations here on the podcast, not leave it theoretical, not leave it with, well, that was a great discussion uh, and I'll move on with my life, but really distill it down as much as we ever can to, okay, well, I agreed with that. I heard the call. Now what? Um, and, you know, what I'm hearing, you know, kind of two big things uh, for the now what to me, and I'd love for you to add anything I'm missing, Scott, here uh, as we, you know, kind of come down to a close today. Uh, first is 
If you're in a position to do hiring, to influence hiring, to bring talent into your organizations, to set the direction and the tone of that process, please be aware. Be aware that in, there are individuals across a wide range of uh, neurodiversity and neurotypical that can fill those roles, but inform yourself, particularly here, about the neurodiverse candidates, what that means for them and the impact that they could have in a positive way for your organization first. So maybe one of general awareness, and I would say that listening to the podcast today hopefully is a, a big step in the right direction for that particular objective. And then the second one that, that I come away with today, Scott, is um, to really be thoughtful about, to your point, what does this role need? Not is, does this role need a really good social interview? Because <laughs> chances are, probably it doesn't. Um, but what does this role really need? And I find that oftentimes a lot of, of folks, and I've been guilty of this in my past, are not always thoughtful about what is really required for the role. And we tend to fall back on past experience of this is how we've always sourced. So two things for me show up. One is general awareness. And two is being really thoughtful about what the roles need. And I think when you have that, you may find a, a an amazingly large and capable talent pool amongst folks that are neurodivergent that can help you and your organizations accomplish their goals. I wonder if you would add anything that I've missed here or provide some additional color. Yeah, I think the third takeaway should be you are not alone if you want to solve this challenge. Um, if you have entry-level talent roles, roles where you'd be comfortable hiring somebody into their first tech job and you're struggling to fill them, reach out to Melwood. Melwood's producing graduates every year that are perfect for these roles. If we can't help you because we don't have presence in your area, we have a mission-aligned nonprofit in your area that we can refer you to. Um, so to keep it easy for today, I'm going to say reach out to us www.melwood.org is our website. Like I said, we will connect you with talent or we will refer you to a vocational rehabilitation agency or nonprofit in your area who can help you because that's what we're here to do. We're here to make this easy for you. So whether it's us, whether it's one of our mission-aligned nonprofits in other areas, we're going to be there with you every step of the way. This is not a big journey that you have to take by yourself. That's great. Scott, thank you so much for joining today. Thanks to Melwood for a continued partnership with Cybrary. We are truly fortunate to be able to be a part of the amazing program that Melwood is putting together. And I personally am honored that Cybrary continues to be a partner in this initiative. Um, we are so thrilled to do our small part uh, in, in this larger initiative um, so thank you so much. Thanks to Mel Wood. Um, and um, we're looking forward to a continued partnership between our organizations for years to come. Thank you. Cybrary, the premier cybersecurity skill development platform, is empowering individuals and teams to secure the future of technology. See why 3 million people have already signed up when you visit www.cybrary.it.